0: Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I am Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you will hear our passion for the gospel and people's need to hear it, and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. Today we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Matthew. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons in our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply send me an email at pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Matthew 22, um, we are walking through really Jesus' last week, and we're on Tuesday, even though today is Sunday, we're on Tuesday still. It's called the day of testing, um, day of controversy. There's different ways theologians talk about this day because of the intense uh, questioning Jesus encounters on this day. So let's look in Matthew 22 if you have a Bible, you can turn there. The verses will be up on the screen. There's also a Bible on the pew underneath you. You could reach down. There's a little black Bible there. If you'd like to turn there yourself, we'll be in Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. Now, we're going to go through the end of the chapter, but I'm going to just read um, right now through verse uh, 22 to begin with. So it says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him and what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God and truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for poll tax." And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Let's pray over this passage this morning. God, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the example he shows us. But more than that, I thank you for his work on the cross. As we work through this last week of Jesus, he is getting closer and closer to the cross. And on this day that we read about, he is showing himself to be the exemplar in teaching the law. He is the good teacher, but He's so much more. So I thank you for our Savior, fully God, fully man, who died for our sins. And God, I pray today, if there's someone here who does not know Jesus, that through this passage, they would come to know who He is and what He has done for them. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you miss tests from school, right? No hands, right? No one really misses tests, do they? Um, some of us might have been better at tests than others, but I'm glad we don't have to do tests normally in, in life. There was a, a lady that was reported in 2005. She lived in South Korea. She was a grandma. Her name was Cha Sa Son. And uh, she was 64 years old, and she decided she was going to go get her driving License, So she went and took the test. You needed to get 60% or more to pass. And she took the test and failed. And so she went back again 949 times. Reported in the news. She went back every day for that first week. And then... The next week, she went five times a week, and for three years, she went five times a day and failed every time she took the test. She had to pay something like $5 in South Korean money, you know, the equivalent of $5, every time she took it. She spent $4,200. First three years, she took it five times a week. Then after that, she started taking it twice a week. And she took the test and took the test. After the 950th time... She passed the written exam. Uh huh. She then she had to go in for her driving test and her, you know, her driving skills and her road test. She failed each of those four times and then she passed. And thankfully she's driving on the roads of South Korea, right, and not Colorado. She said, to me, commuting every day to the test was like going to school. I always miss school. So she liked going and taking those tests. Well, we're glad we don't have to take tests, but, uh, you know, today that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the testing of Jesus. Now, Jesus didn't have to t- pass this test 950 times to pass. He didn't need that kind of, of preparation. In fact, these tests really could be called traps. They they are attempts to capture Jesus in his teaching so that his followers would stop listening to him. But he but that these traps did not work. They were they were like the mouse trap that you try to set and it comes back and gets your thumb. Um, you didn't get the mouse, but it gets you. Gets you. That is that is what happened with these. These religious leaders, they try to set these traps and they really get caught in them. And Jesus is portrayed here as the teacher of the law. They, they, were, they were supposed to be the teachers of the law. And they thought they were going to get him and make his followers dissipate. But instead they prove him to be the one who really knows the law. And so let's look at these tests to see... What, gee, what they did, and what we can learn from these tests. And so what we're going to see here are really three different tests. Remember, he has just given them three scathing parables about the religious leaders. And we, we saw that in, verse, in, in chapters uh, 20, 21, and 20, uh, well, in verses 21. Chapter 21, we saw these three parables that were really scathing comments on these religious leaders. Now they've come to him. He is standing in the temple complex, remember, and they come to him and attempt to trap him. And the first test they give him is the political test. The political test, and it is really answering the question, what is God owed? What is God owed? Let's read that passage once more. We just read it, but let's read it again. And then I'm just going to comment on it and stuff. These passages, all of them could take deeper study. I'd encourage you to look at them yourselves. But let's just look. I wanted you to see the whole context of all these religious leaders testing him. So that's why we're going through the chapter. It says, Then the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you're truthful, and teach the way of God and truth, and defer to no one, for you're not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax and they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said, Render to Caesar's the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Taxation was a huge thing in the ancient Near East. Rome had set up an incredible peace that the world had not seen. It's called the Pax Romana. It is the peace of Rome that brought a general peace to all the world, and because of that they could maintain roads, they could maintain aqueducts. There was all these benefits that Rome provided, and they said, to do this, we need your tax. Now, it wasn't a request. Caesar was Caesar. He was the emperor. He was the king. What he said goes. And so he wanted everyone to pay a tax. The tax was generally a denarius. One day laborer's wage. So it wasn't much tax over the course of the year, but it was a tax nonetheless. Now, the the coin that was used, that denarius, well, let me say this. There was the poll tax. That's what we're talking about here. The poll tax was a tax on every single Jew, including slaves and women. It wasn't just the men. It was everyone who had a pulse that was an adult. They got taxed. Sound familiar? I mean, I'm just saying. You got a pulse, you get taxed. That's the way it is. That's what Rome had uh, installed. And so people did not like paying this tax, just like we don't like paying our tax. and this coin that was was given to uh pay this tax, the denarius it was a it was a coin like our coins today, right it had had two sides there was two emblems on it. the first had the head of Caesar the head of Caesar was on it, and on the inscription it would say. In Latin, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Did you hear that? It said that this person, this face, was the son of the divine Augustus, and so Tiberius was claiming to be God's son. And on the other side, uh, I'm sorry, on the other side of the coin, there was a. A Caesar sitting on a throne, and in Latin, it had said, High Priest. So the coin had Caesar's face on it, and it said he was God's son, and he was High Priest. And that's what they had to pay their taxes with. Well, the Pharisees, they didn't like this, obviously. First, it was idolatrous. To have this coin to pay said, I'm holding an idol that says something else was God. Caesar was. And to pay that tax, the Pharisees said, to pay this tax meant I submit myself to Gentile rule. They wanted to be free, but they couldn't be. And they said we could do better things with our money than sending it off to Rome. Again, does that sound familiar? <laughs> They did not. They hated. The Pharisees hated to pay taxes to Rome. It was an affront to their religion. It was an affront to their, their, just their pride. They hated doing it. Well, these Pharisees decided they'd partner up with the Herodians. Now, we don't know much about the Herodians other than what's found in scripture. We can gather by their name. They supported the Herods. Now, the Herods, you might remember Herod the Great. He was the one who was killing all the babies when Jesus was born. Now, Herod the Great was like George Foreman. He named all his kids Herod, right? George Foreman, all his kids, George, 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 right? Herod the Great had children, and they were all named Herod. Okay? So there was Herod Tiberius, there was Herod Philippi, there was Herod, there was all these different Herods. The one that's at Jesus' trial is Herod Antipas. These Herodians liked the Herods because the Herods provided a lot of benefit to Jerusalem in their mind. The great temple that that was there when Jesus walked in, it was called Herod's Temple because Herod, Herod the Great did a lot of building up of, of Jerusalem. Now, before Antipas, the Herod that was there between Herod the Great and Herod Antipas, he was a brutal leader, and Rome removed him and put in uh, Pontius Pilate that that position. And so the Herod was there, kind of as a puppet king of Rome. They really had no not much power, but what Rome had to to give. But these people, the Herodians, understood that if they supported the Herods, then they're really supporting Rome. And they said it would be good citizenship to pay this tax. We don't think it's a bad deal. So here's some Jewish people, one who hate the tax and say, this is a reminder that we're under Gentile rule, it's idolatry. And the other group saying, I don't mind it so much. Because look of all the secular benefits we get. Now political enemies make strange bedfellows, right? And these two come together and they say, we're gonna get Jesus. And they say, no matter what he says, it doesn't matter because one or the other group's gonna get him. If he says, no, don't pay taxes, the Herodians are gonna rise up. If he says, pay taxes, the Pharisees are gonna get him. They say, we've got this nailed down. This is a great trap for Jesus. And so they come together, and they flatter Jesus with talk that they don't mean. Oh, you're an awesome teacher. You know, you, you're great. You don't prefer to anybody. And they ask the question, should we pay taxes or not? Jesus calls them, you hypocrites. This is not about taxes. Quit playing a role. That's what the word hypocrite really was about. Putting on a mask and playing a role. He says, you're not really asking me about taxes. So he says... Give me a denarius. No, Jesus didn't carry a denarius. And second, they did. Right? They didn't have to go looking for one. Someone pulled out one. They pulled out a denarius and he says, Whose image and likeness, whose likeness and inscription is on this coin? The answer is obvious, it's Caesar's. So he says, render to Caesar those things that Caesar is due. That's what the word render is. It's pay, pay what's due, pay what is owing to Caesar. Caesar said to live in my kingdom, you must pay this tax with my coin, with my image, and my inscription on it. Render to Caesar those things that have Caesar's image stamped on it, those things that have Caesar's name written on it, and then Jesus says, render to God the things that are God. And what we can hear from that is him saying, we render to God the things that have his image stamped on it, and his name written on it. Well, what has God's image stamped upon it? That's right, every one of us. We all have God's image stamped upon us, so to speak. We are created in the image of God. Every person is made in the image of God. They have far more value than a denarius that Caesar had his image on. So what is due to God? What is the political test about? What is due to God is our very self. Everything we are, we are to owe to God. God is due glory and honor and worship and majesty. He's due our surrender. He is due our worship. Everything we are, everything we do, we, God is owed that. So we render the things, render God the things that are God. The political tests ask that question. Really, is what they're asking. What is God owed? I ask that in your life. What is God owed in your life? What are you holding back from God? Is there an area of your life that you haven't fully handed over to Him? Whether that is your your time or your treasure or your talent, whether it's your your business or your reputation or or your, um, your, your service to the community, whatever it might be, God is due that. His image is stamped on you. His name is written on you. You belong to Him. He is due these things. We render unto God the things that are God. So they attempt to trap him with the political test. They're amazed at what they heard, and so they left. So Jesus is still standing there in the courtyard, and then another group comes, and they give him the doctrinal test. And they ask really the question, what is the power of God? Let's look in verse 23 through 33. On that day, some Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, as next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died and having no children, left his wife to his brother. And so the second and the third, down to the seventh, last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all married her. And Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But according to... But sorry, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. First group had the Pharisees come to him with the Herodians. Now we have the Sadducees come to him. The Sadducees were essentially the theological liberals of Jesus' day. They believed in God, but not all that the Scripture says about God. They said, we limit the authority of Scripture to the first five books of the Bible. The Pentateuch. The law. What the law says we believe, and anything else. By Jesus' day, they had our entire Old Testament. But they didn't believe the entire Old Testament. They only believed the law. And nothing else. And because of that, they also said that they don't believe in any spiritual aspects of life. They did not believe in heaven. They did not believe in hell. They thought the soul would die with the body. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection, which is why they were sad. You see, right? Y'all know the joke, right? That is, that's, the, that's why you remember them. This is why they were sad. That's an old and poor joke, but he had to put it in. Anyway... So they, they quote Deuteronomy twenty-five five, and that points to a larger scripture of Deut- Deuteronomy twenty-five, which is Deuteronomy five twenty-five five through ten, and it talks about something that's called the Levirate marriage. Levirate is a Latin word that means husband's brother, and this is talking about brother-in-law marriage. To put it right down to it, we won't talk about the. Prospect of marrying your brother-in-law—I'll just put that out there—but that's what it's talking about. The purpose in the law was this: if there was a man who died, he could not carry on his name, and he—if he, he died before an heir, his his name would not continue, his inheritance would be lost, and his his line would drop out. There was this guy was gone. And so the idea was his brother was to take the wife and have a child so that she could carry on her past husband's name. And the child then could have the inheritance that the dad was due. It was an important part of Jewish life in this day and time. We have examples of this in scripture. We have the story of Tamar in Genesis 38. We have the story of Ruth, and in Ruth chapter, chapter 4 we read about this. Both stories, in both of those stories, the brother-in-laws or the next of kin are reluctant to do this. Just for whatever it's worth. It wasn't something people relished doing. So these Sadducees bring this ridiculous story to Jesus. If this is true, it's incredibly tragic. They said there was a man who married a woman. And one by one, these men started dying. After about five, you would start thinking they would think there was something wrong with this woman, right? But seven of these, seven of these guys die, and then she dies. It's a, it's a tragic story, or it's an absolute absurd story, and that's the point of it. They said, we had these seven brothers. I don't believe that really happened. I think they were making it up to try to trap Jesus but their question was this when all these guys married her and then they died without an heir and then she died at the resurrection which they did not believe in at the resurrection whose whose wife is she going to be which one their point is, is this, that God would not set up a system that would cause so much confusion and, and chaos in the resurrection. And they were trying to set up Jesus as an illog- illogical teacher. They wanted to say, hey, you shouldn't listen to him. If he, uh, if he Accepted the resurrection, then he's illogical, and if we rejected the resurrection, then the Pharisees are gonna sick them, because they do believe in the resurrection. They thought again they had the perfect trap. Jesus tells them they're ignorant. They don't know. First, they don't know scripture. They can quote scripture, but they don't know scripture. That's a, that's a danger for us we can maybe quote scripture but the question is do you know scripture in previous ministries i know some some youth who could open the bible at bible drills and get to a verse quicker than anybody else and had no idea what those verses said or meant in their life you can get there quick but is it changing you is the question These guys knew their scripture, but they didn't know their scripture. They were asking spiritual questions from a fleshly mindset, and here's what they did. They assumed eternity is just like this life, but longer. And that's not what eternity is like. Eternity, guys, heaven is not like this life, only a little better and a little longer. That's not what eternity is. There are some going to be some similarities, but heaven and eternity will be radically different than anything we can put our mind to, what we can think of and imagine. It's going to be different. And Jesus tells us that there. He says, you not only know, don't know scripture, you don't know the power of God. Because this is what he's trying to say. God has the power to raise up, raise us up from the dead to an existence that's radically different than this one. He has the power to raise us up to a new existence. Because he says here, listen, in heaven, or in the resurrection, in eternity, there is no marriage. Why is there no marriage? There's no marriage... Because there's no death. Remember what the what the trap was. These guys were marrying this woman so that she could have an heir to raise up children. To raise up an heir. And Jesus is saying, God has the power to not raise up an heir. He has the power to raise up the man himself. His His line isn't going to die because he is living forever. Do you see the... The difference in thought. There is no marriage in heaven. One commentary said it this way, Immortality will make procreation unnecessary. This might be a radical thought. But in the Bible, marriage was really for the purpose of procreation. But guys, in eternity, the number of redeemed are set. Just like the number of angels is set. We don't die and become angels. You might, you might say, you hear at funerals all the time that someone died because God needed another angel. And that might give you comfort, but it's horrible theology because it's just not true. The number of angels is set. And we are loved by God. we got the image of God on us. The angels don't. We are more valuable than the angels. We will be above the angels in eternity, the scripture tells us. The exclusive, intimate relationship between a husband and wife, where the husband and wife truly know each other best, that will not be the norm in eternity. In fact, the intimacy that we have will be so much greater. Not only with each other, but with our Savior. The scripture says, we will know as we are known. See, we marry, and one of the things, when when someone loses a spouse, one of the things they truly miss is being known by someone. Being really known by someone. In eternity, that's not going to be the case. In eternity, we're all going to be perfect, and we're not going to be guarded. We're not going to be shamed that I can't reveal this I can't reveal this part of myself to someone else because they won't see me the same way they won't love me the same way and heaven that's going to be gone will be perfect in our savior and we will be we'll have intimacy that far that far outpaces any kind of intimacy we have here in 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 this life I don't know if that speaks to you or not but what we shouldn't be is saying, well, all I want is my spouse in heaven. And I, we, we will have that. I believe we'll know who our spouse was. I believe we know their relationship. But the intimacy we have here is going to be far more greater there. But not only with them, but with, with our Savior and with every other person that is redeemed for eternity. We will, we will know as we are known. Thank Thank you. Thank you. I needed needed someone. Thank you. That's great. Praise God. That is what Jesus is saying when he says they're in the resurrection. They're neither married or given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. That's what that is saying. Things are so much greater there. Life in eternity is not like this life, just extended. And that's what, the Pharaoh, that's what the Sadducees were thinking. And then he moves from that and saying, by the way, your guy's view on resurrection is just wrong. And he starts talking about the resurrection. And he quotes, he quotes the law, the one place that they say they would really know. And he quotes Exodus 3.6, Moses at the burning bush. And while Moses is at the burning bush, Abraham is long dead. And so is Isaac and Jacob. They've been dead for, for over 400 years. And at that point, God says, I am the God of Abraham. And I am the God of Isaac. And I am the God of Jacob. He didn't say, I was the God of Abraham. He says, I am. At this point, right now, in this moment in time, I am still Abraham's God. Because God had the power to raise up Abraham from the dead. And he was not dead. He was alive with him. So what is the... That is, that is the power that he's talking about. They tried to get him with a doctrinal question about a ridiculous story. And God says, I want to talk about the power of God. And the power of God is that he raises everyone from the dead. God, he, guys, he, he raises everyone from the dead. Look what it says in Acts 24. I did not get these verses to our folks in the uh, balcony. That is my fault so you'll have to do it the old-fashioned way. Do that Baptist air conditioning, we call it, where you flip your Bible. like to hear that sound anyway. But Acts twenty-four fifteen, it says this, Having hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. There's a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Every person who's ever lived, every person living now, every person who who will live, when we pass, our bodies will be in the ground. And at some point in time, Christ is going to raise everyone from the dead. And look what it says in John Five. Go back a little bit in your Bible. For if you're in Acts, turn back a little bit to the book of John, chapter 5. And it says this. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life... Those who are committed to the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Every person here, when we pass, will be raised either to eternal life or to eternal judgment. All depending upon what we did with Jesus Christ. Did we trust him or did we reject him? Do you believe God has the power to raise the dead? That's a question you have to ask yourself. And then, when you say, you get to the point that the Bible does and says, yes, He is going to raise the dead, then the question is, have you trusted in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? That when He raises you from the dead, you will be brought into eternal life. They attempted to trap Jesus with a political question. They tried to trap him with a doctrinal question. Those failed, so they gathered themselves and sent in another guy trying to get Jesus to, to fall. And so they asked him an ethical test. They, they brought an ethical test to him. And that is the question of, what's the one thing I need to do? Here they brought in a a lawyer, Mark calls him a scribe. Let's look in verse 34. Matthew twenty-two thirty-four. 34. But when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, that silence is the same word as muzzled that we talked about last week. They just had nothing to say, so they moved on. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together, one of them, a lawyer, Asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And the great, this is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The scribe, this lawyer, that's part of the religious leaders. They had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you have these scribes. The scribes are thought of experts in the law and the Mosaic law. Not like lawyers like we have today, but these were experts in the Mosaic law. And again, Mark calls them a scribe. And they said, what is the most important law? They had been categorizing the law for many years. The law has 613 commands. And they started saying, okay, no one can really do all these, so let's categorize these as heavy laws, or these are the most important laws, and let's put these over here, we're going to call them light laws, or or very not important laws. And so which one, let's focus on the heavy laws, because those are really the ones you need to keep. So for example, the law says do not murder anyone, we're going to call that a heavy law. But the law also says you've got to build a parapet on your house. Which we're going to call that a light law. Because building a parapet and killing someone aren't equal, is what they would say. In God's eye, the law is the law. In fact, their their motivation for categorizing these as flaws, when we read James 2.10, that says that if you keep the whole law, yet stumble in one point, you become guilty of it all. But they've been categorizing these laws in various various ways and they said this the trap was if jesus says this is the most important law then anybody else can come and say no 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 this is the most important law and they'd have a debate on their hands so they ask him what's the most important law it's the one question jesus answers directly he says what's the one thing you need to do you need to love he answers using Deuteronomy 6.5. It's called the Shema. It's called Shema because in Hebrew the word here is the word Shema. Jewish people still say this today. It's it, It's that passage you may have heard that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Deuteronomy says might, Jesus says mind. The whole point of that is Jesus is saying we need to love God with everything we have. With our emotion, with our volition, with our intellect, everything we have, we are to love God with it. We're not to hold back any part of our life to God. But then he says, the second is like it that is if you want to talk about the first we can talk about the first but the second we can talk about the second and he can he was he was not really trying to rank them he was just simply saying you want to talk about rank let's talk about rank love god and he says love others he quotes leviticus 19:18 8, which says just what he said love your neighbor as yourself now this does not mean which you hear sometimes in christian circles That first, you must love yourself, and then you can love others. That's not what this is saying. This assumes we love ourselves. It assumes we are consumed with ourselves, and instead of loving ourselves, we should direct that toward others. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. That's what it's saying. What's the one thing we should do? We love God and love others. One can't happen without the other. They are two sides of the same coin. You cannot love God if you do not love other people. And you cannot really love other people if you do not love God. That's what John tells us in Scripture. Look in 1 John. Near the back of the Bible, close to Revelation. It's easier to get there from the back. 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 and 20, it says, We love because He, God, first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. I'm going to read it again. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Jesus is saying these two are are tied together. Loving God and loving others. In fact, he says the entire law and all the prophets, he's saying the entirety of Scripture they had at the time was summed up in those two principles. As you're reading Scripture Believer, as you read scripture, you should be asking yourself, what passage, what in this passage is telling me, what is it teaching me about how I can love God deeper? And we need to be asking ourselves, what in this passage, what is this passage challenging me to to love people more genuinely and more unconditionally and deeper? And as we're reading Scripture with how do I love God and how do I love others more, we're going to get more out of our Bible reading. Because Jesus is saying here, these two commandments, love God, love others... The law and prophets depend upon that understanding. If you're reading the, the prophets and you hear how God is going to bring judgment upon these people and your heart is, oh yeah, God, get them. We're not reading it right. Because God's heart is broken doing that. And we should love others enough to say, we don't want people to go through that. And if we read our scripture and we come away with with a wrong idea about God that distances us from Him, we're not reading our scripture correctly. Our scripture should draw us in a deeper love of God. Do you love God with everything you have? With your whole person? And do you love others with everything you have? Even the guy... Driving slow on Townsend. Do you love that guy? What about that person in Walmart that just seems unlovable? Do you know that person's got the image of God stamped upon them and Jesus died for them? And without Christ, they are destined to eternity in hell? Do you love them? Do we love others? in the way that we should, love our neighbor as ourself. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, they attempted to trap Jesus. They tried to trap him in a political, a, a doctrinal, and an ethical debate. They tried to put these tests toward them, and they failed. None of these worked. Jesus answered as an expert in the law. He was the great rabbi. And then Jesus turns the table on them, and in this last section, he asks them the most important question. He asks them the heart question, who is Jesus? That's what he asks them. The heart question. Who is Jesus? Look in verse 41 through 46. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. And he said to them, Then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. So if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer a word. Look what it says. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him any other questions so we ask them a question what line is the messiah coming from that's the question whose son is the christ the christ and the word christ and the word messiah are the same word that means god's anointed god sent one christ is greek messiah is hebrew but that's the same word where is the messiah coming from whose line is he coming from and they answered correctly, they said David's line. You could say the Messiah was David's son. That was That's one of Matthew's favorite way to talk about Jesus throughout the whole book, that he's the son of David. You can turn to verse 1 um, in the book, I believe it's verse 1, and he says about Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The son of David, the son of Abraham. That's how Matthew refers to him. This is the chosen king from David's line who is coming. So the Messiah, they said, I know the Messiah is coming from David's line. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. You might think it's Psalm 23, but it's not. It's Psalm 110. It is a messianic psalm that points to Christ over and over and over again. Almost every verse is pointing to Christ. King David wrote that psalm, and in the very first verse, that's what Jesus quotes, he says, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand. So Yahweh said something to David's Lord, to David's master, but David was king. The king didn't have a master, other than God. So So Jesus is making them really work through this process. Who is David talking to as master if Yahweh said to someone else who is David's Lord? If David calls him Lord, then how is he David's son? Jesus is making a really deep, important truth that we cannot miss that the Messiah was going to have a human lineage. He was going to come from David. But Yahweh is calling him David's Lord, that he was greater than David, that he was God. He was David's king, David's master. He's speaking really here in Psalm 110, it's really speaking about a a dual nature of the Messiah that he's going to be from David's line but he's going to be David's Lord and the son wouldn't be that if he was just simply human so who is Jesus? in this passage Jesus is trying to get the Pharisees the Sadducees the scribes or the religious leaders to see that the Messiah was fully God fully man and he's standing right in front of them and it says they have nothing to say they were not able to answer him a word. They knew that if they answered him a word in any way, they would they would be caught in his trap. And would have to answer the question, what do you do with Jesus? Do you believe he's fully God and fully man who came to die so that we could be forgiven and stand before God? Or is he just a man? He is entirely human, entirely divine, who came to redeem us. And the question is, do you believe this? This answered all the other questions. It stopped all the other questions. They didn't test Him anymore. Now He is moving on again to the cross. He's got some other words to say to them. In fact, chapter 23, 24, 25, 26, He's going to just, well, through 25, He has got this long speech that He is going to give. But they're not questioning Him anymore. They've tested Him and He's passed. He's passed. He is the, the one who knows the law because he is God in the flesh. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through this. Have you been through the heart test? That is, have you answered the question, who is Jesus to your life? If you say he's a good person, I like Jesus, but I'm not going to live for him. You've missed, you've missed it you failed the test. If you say, I believe Jesus is fully God and fully man, and I trust His work on the cross to bring forgiveness of sins, not my good work, but what He has done for me, you're a believer, and you're going to be raised to eternal life. But if you reject Jesus, and you die in the state of rejecting Jesus, you'll be raised but you'll be raised to eternal judgment, separated from God, separated from anyone. Jesus calls it the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where do you stand today? Heavenly Father, I ask that you would move among us. And for those who, who know you, I just pray today that they would have um, a more glorious picture of who you are, what eternity is like, how great Jesus is, God, that our, that our worship to you would be more genuine. That our scripture reading would be deeper and more transformative. And, and God, our prayers to you would, would truly call out to you as the one true God. God, for those who do not know you, they're sitting here today and have never really made a decision for you. God, I pray that you would compel them right now. We love because you first loved us. And so God, draw them to you. Let them not feel any comfort. Let them feel the uncomfortable stir of your conviction in their life until they surrender to you. And then they would know the peace that passes understanding, the hope of eternal life, the joy of an abundant life here and for eternity. Move among us in that way today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org.